January. I'm like, it's still, <laughs> we're still deep in December. I know. I have no idea what day it is. It's December 28th, I think. No. Uh, no. No. It's Mm-mm. the 29th. And what are you doing? Where are you? I'm at the uh, Ace Hotel um, in Palm Springs. And it's amazing here. I actually... I had no idea this morning. Megan and I are, are working on launching Hip Sobriety School. We kind of get together and we do long days. And we're the best place we found to work here is in the bar. And like literally, yeah. it's a bar that smells like milky old beer smell. And the bartender came up to us and asked us if we were um, hacking the Russians. And we were like, no. <laughs> no we're building a school exactly. on sobriety. And then he started talking about. Um, Something about wine, like the best wine, the sweetest wine coming from the hardest soil. I didn't know what he meant. You're like, um, he's so nice. But then we got into this conversation. I mean, it was weird, but he was nice. And then we got into this conversation about stuff that's around here. And it's fascinating. There's this place called the um, Integratron, which is a dome in the middle of the high desert that plays. Yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah. And that's just yeah. one thing. I mean, we, we were, they were just going off at all the stuff. And so I was like, I want to get in my car and just drive the fuck around the desert. Um, sure. It's amazing here. So, yeah. So I'm here. We're building Hip Sobriety School. And um, and it's awesome. And you're on your way to the Midwest, right? I'm on my way to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. What's St. Louis like? Have you ever been there? No. I know nothing about it. I picture Clydesdales, which isn't really? real. Well, yeah. It's the home of. Is it the home of Budweiser? Budweiser. Is that Colorado so. or that's no, the Rockies? Colorado's course, course. Um, oh. But I think it's probably like our friends Matt, Chris, and Jeff from since right now. Like that's how I picture St. Louis, just to be awesome, like they are. Oh, good. <laughs> are they there? They are there, but oh my god, are you gonna see them? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think there's time. Did you tell them? Maybe I'll sneak something in. Yeah, I did. Uh, I don't know if my retreat is exactly their jam, but. Well, I wouldn't imagine they'd go to your retreat. I just was wondering, were they like, I mean, yeah. did you guys send out your back I might signals? be able to see them tomorrow. I'll check in. Maybe maybe you can do some food tomorrow or something. But yeah, I'm headed there to do a retreat for New Year's Eve. Yeah, with um, Becky Bulmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it'll be good. So I am running late to get myself to the airport. Shocker. I had very little to do today, but I kept watching Mad Men. I'm almost <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I had nothing to do. I'm the same. I'm terrible. It's so hard when it's so good. I don't want them to be. I don't want it to be over. Yeah. So we are going to get right to our Well, let's guests. do a couple of um, promotions for our staff. Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
Hip Sobriety School, it is, so this is going to air what? The third? The third? Mm-hmm. No. A uh, fourth or it, whatever next Wednesday is, yeah. Um, but it'll be airing right around the time that registration opens. I think we're opening registration the night of the third, and it'll probably be open for about um, about 48 hours. Um, we probably will sell this one out. And so if you are interested in an eight-week course to, if you're interested in either exploring sobriety or you are on a path already and you are looking to strengthen your recovery, meet other like-minded people that are on the same path as you, learn how to build a great holistic recovery, um, this is what we do. So starting, the school starts January 12th and it runs for eight weeks. It ends on March 9th. And over the course of eight weeks together, we learn how to build a recovery together and create a community to do that in that really supports mm-hmm. um supports us on our way. And so if you want to know more about it, just go to thehipsobrietyproject.com and you can learn all about it and how to sign up or you can email us at admin at hipsobriety.com. That's what I got. Sweet. You? Yeah, uh, I am. Let's see. There are a few things. I have few events coming up in the new year. I have one in January in Boston. Um, it is a voice of the body workshop one day type of thing or just a three hour type of thing. I have one in New York City on February 12th uh, at Sky Team Yoga and I have a retreat with Meadow DeVore actually in January that one sold out but we just la- we just announced another one in California, April 6th through 9th in San Luis Obispo. And it is, the registration is open for that. Um, It is a little pricier than our other ones. Uh, And the reason is is because this place is very uh, posh and uh, luxurious. It's at a ranch. Which ranch? Um, I think it's called Green Gate Ranch Mm -hmm. um, right in the right in the valley there and it's uh yeah it's it, it we've had a couple of people comment that it's that it's expensive and it, it is but it's not because we're upcharging a bunch for us it's to cover the cost of this incredible place so how many um, days and how many nights is it it is three nights and four mm, days yummy uh yeah thursday to sunday and uh i'm so excited april in california sounds wonderful to me yeah uh, and that's all. That's what I have. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So do you want to introduce our guest today? Yes. So today we are talking to our friend Sarah Roberts uh, about sugar and food. Uh, we met Sarah online uh, through the, the sort of web that we're in of sober people and she uh, wrote a book called The 28-Day Kick the Sugar Challenge. Um, and we both did that challenge along with Megan, our um, woman behind, well, your right hand, our um, savior on home who does all our help and makes this happen. Um, and we did it and we talk about our individual experiences and we get into a lot more too around eating and food. I mean, whenever we open that can of worms, 
there's a lot that comes with it, right? Um, so we talk about that. We're really honest about our experience. Sarah shares uh, her story, which is she has been sober from alcohol for quite some time, I think 14 or 15 years. Um, but she also has, I'll let you listen. She's got a unique story um, that includes sort of her path to being public about her sobriety, but also uh, around her sort of core mission, which is around uh, health, uh, food. And specifically, she's focused on sugar um, and helping people break their addiction to sugar. She uh, is at sarahtalksfood.com and there's information about her book there and also how to buy the book and join the challenge. I know she has a private Facebook group for the community there. And I think that's all. Let everyone listen and, and get the story that way. You have anything to add? No, I just thought it was great. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's, we, when we get into it and we are talking to her, I think one of the, the parts of, of really understanding Sarah's story is understanding that her, um, you know, I think for some people along this way, these are all invitations into coming home to ourselves. And we really, what what got me and really hooked me the most was when she's talking about how she was just making it through sobriety. And then when she started to get involved with her health and wellness and diet, that was really the hook for her into the path. Um, and I love that because I think it's such an important thing to remember in this is that we all have, you know, a unique path that we're walking. Um, and, and the hook is always, you know, what brings us into, what brings us into, um, what's the, how am I trying to say this? I think the hook is always what really engages us as something, you know, what engages us to want to do the work. Um, and for her, that's, that's, that was when she started to really take an interest in what she was putting in her body. Um, and so I think that's an important part of the story that I hope comes across. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's still exploring this, this food thing, right. Which is yeah. so big and hard to wrestle. So and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have, we talked with Isabel Fox and Duke, who's coming on the week following, who's the opposite of what Sarah's talking about, because mm-hmm. that works for her. And mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. the thing that I hope everyone keeps in mind is as all things, just take what works, take, take what you can take and leave whatever doesn't work. Um, when it comes to, you know, building your path for sobriety, but also building your path for how you eat and view your body and, and, and treat your body. And, um, I mean, cause there is since, I mean, I have yet to find anybody, you know, who has figured out the way, um, to, to no, the, we figure out our way that yeah. works for us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. So here is Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. It's not quite so early for me here on the East Coast. So I'm, or not the East Coast, but in Ontario, Canada. So I am at 930 in the morning where Holly is at 630. So not so bad for me. (laughs) 
Is it cold there? Is it is here? It's like frozen outside. It is like frozen. I feel like Elsa. Um, I'm looking out my studio window and it is completely snow covered roofs and it's beautiful. I mean, I love the winter, so I'm pretty lucky that way. But definitely we are we are cold in this neck of the woods. Yeah, same, same, same. Yep. So we are we're super excited to talk to you. This has been a conversation that's kind of been long, long coming. And just a quick background for the listeners before we jump in. Um, Sarah, we met, how did we meet? We met online, just like everything else, everybody else. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, how did you, did you find us? Did we find you? I don't remember. Oh my gosh. And do you know what? I was trying to remember this myself. I don't know how I came upon you either I, I I'm sure somebody added me to the to the home group I don't know who that was so whoever it was thank you I actually Laura I think I asked you somehow I connected with you and I asked you if I qualified to be yeah. part of your of your home group and you you said you graciously accepted me in so I'm not sure exactly how I came upon you girls but it was just uh it was meant to be yeah no. and then we um we, you are behind the the woman behind the Kick the Sugar Challenge and yep. Sarah Talks Food, the website. And so you um, have been a huge part of sort of the, the group in terms of educating people on on sugar and just in more than that nutrition. Uh, and you, I, I think what we want you to do is talk about your story, like how you got here you know to be doing what you're doing and and yeah just take us through it I real quick I do remember the first time we talked you wrote Laura you put a blog post up about alcohol addiction and yes. you mentioned Laura and I in it and I don't know if you yes. just came out about with it with the alcohol part of it um, yes but you wrote a, a piece on it and you and you mentioned Laura and I and then you sent it to both of us and then she and I and then she and I sent what you wrote to each of us to each other because we share letters whenever the others commented about. Um, and that was what I remember. When was that? Yeah. So that was over a year ago now when I first launched my blog, that was in 2015. Mm -hmm. And I came out as an alcoholic to my followers, uh, you know, to, to my community and just letting them know I'm starting this blog, but there's no way I can start this blog without first sharing the reason why I'm starting this blog, which, um, you know, of course it's about the food journey because that is my recovery story. It's a huge part of it. And so I just knew though, that I could not put this thing out there into the world without being really truthful about why food became such a, an important part of my life. And so that's what I did in 2015. And, uh, fast forward about a year later, I finally, you know, just really wanted to connect with more of a community and to really start to share more of the truth of my life. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's when I, I shared that that post about different recovery communities and different people that were out there so that people wouldn't feel so alone when it came to coming out about addiction and about alcoholism. And I and I um and I remember, yes, that's exactly right. So I I pieced that together. Thank you, Holly, for reminding me how that all happened. Yeah. No mm-hmm. problem. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just going back to um to Laura's question. Laura, do you mm-hmm. want to ask it again? Yeah. So take us to, you know, how you got here. Like before you posted that, that you created that post. Yep. You know, take us as far back as you, you know, start wherever you want to start. Yeah. 
Well, why don't we start, you know, why don't we start at the beginning? So I come from uh, from a family of, uh, of social drinkers. We are a family um, where alcohol was just always a part of my, my life. My parents were very social and... Uh, it was alcohol was just always in our home. It was just a part of our lives. In fact, we lived in the UK when I was little, and um, ever since living there, every home we had since that time had a pub built into our into our house. So we had a bar upstairs and a pub down in the basement, and um, it was just a very social atmosphere in my home where alcohol was always readily available. And I didn't think much of of it. I didn't know that um, that would become part of my life necessarily. But I didn't bond all together well with my mom when I was little. And I, again, wouldn't have put that together when I was a kid. I thought I had a really good upbringing. We had a good life. We traveled as a family. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. My dad was a great dad. And, and my mom was a devoted wife and, and homemaker and, you know, great cook and decorator. Our home was always beautiful. And we had money. We weren't struggling in that way. And so I would assume that when I think back to the kid that I was, I thought my life was pretty good. I didn't know anything different. And as I started to um, to get older, about 14 or 15 years old, um, we moved again and it was a really hard move. We, we left Ottawa, the city that I live in now. We left this city and moved to a smaller town. And it was my dad's hometown. So we did have some family there and he had a lot of connections there. And at the time, my brother was extremely devastated about the move. And so he took the attitude of he was just going to basically go to school, come home, lock himself in his room, not speak to the family. And I felt the responsibility of being the kid that didn't make my dad feel any more guilt out of moving us mm -hmm. out of the city that we all loved. And it was a really hard time for our family. The thing is that we didn't know when we were ages 14 and my brother was 16, that it was during a recession and my dad didn't have a lot of choice uh, to move us from the city we were living in and loved as a family. And, um, you know, we look back now and it's amazing. My father passed away a few years ago and something that my brother said at the eulogy when we were putting it together, he said, you know, he was too hard on him. And it's true. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, you don't realize when you're a 14 year old kid, I mean, your whole world is all about you, 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 you know, you don't, think about these struggles that your parents are going through. And my parents were just in their early 40s. Like, I'm 44 now. They were younger than <laughs> I now. now, right? So, mm -hmm. I, you know, there's a lot of um, humanity. There's a lot of uh, compassion that you can have in retrospect. And so uh, I certainly hope and I, I believe that my brother has uh, softened a little bit where that was concerned because that was a really, really hard time. So I basically, like I said, took the attitude that I was going to say that everything was great. Everything was okay. <laughs> You know, we were in this new town and I'm making friends and I'm having a ball. Everything's great. No worries, mom, dad. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I know you've got enough to worry about as far as the guilt is concerned with my brother. So I really, um, and that's actually the first time that I've ever expressed that out loud. So I don't know if my family is ever going to listen to this. Um, they don't necessarily read my blog or my book or, <laughs> um, you know, some of them have. But, you know, that's the first time that I've really kind of put that um, into words and, and out there. So, um, that's interesting, but so anyway, so we're, you know, we're living in this new town. I'm saying everything's fine and everything's not fine. I mean, I'm devastated. I'm 14 years old. I'm feeling like my entire world has been ripped apart. I loved living in Ottawa. It's part of the reason why I moved back here later on in life. And, you know, all my friends are gone and I'm trying to become this person who I don't know how to become. I'm trying to 
weave my way into groups and cliques that have been carefully formulated since they were in kindergarten. And I'm this outsider. And I always felt like the outsider. I never felt like I fit in. I was always just on the periphery. You know, I never felt like I was part of the cool kid club. I always sort of just hung out on the on the outskirts. And I would sort of morph myself and mold myself and, um, and develop the likes and tastes of whoever I was hanging out with at the time. And what's dangerous about that is that I didn't develop a strong sense of self. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you, know, you know, going back to, you know, the, the lack of bonding with my mom, I never had that strength with, with a mother figure. And, you know, the research shows that, you know, the strongest influence that we have as, as children is our same sex parent. And I just never felt that bond. I never felt that strength with her. I never felt like, um, like she was truly rooting for me or or really helping to to um, steer me in directions that would be beneficial for my well-being and my growth. And that's not to put her down. And this is one of the issues that I'm having with my mom now is that she's feeling like whenever I express my truth and my feelings that I'm I'm at the same time tearing her down, calling her a bad parent, you know, mm-hmm. hating on her. Yeah. And really struggling with that and it's something that I'm um, I'm still working through uh, still trying to get the lesson I've almost got it but uh, my mom stopped speaking to me a few months ago because of a blog post that I wrote and and mm-hmm. she felt that I was really throwing her under a bus and making her seem like a bad parent and so that's not what this is about I will just put that out there this is not about when we have feelings it is it's okay to have those feelings and it doesn't mean that we're throwing other people under the bus but we have to be able to share our truth even yeah. if it yeah. means other people and I'm sorry that that is the truth of it and and I'm and and I do appreciate you know being able to tell my truth while respecting the other person's story as well and my mother has her side of the story believe me there are things that I've forgotten that I've done that I'm glad I've forgotten that I've done in my relationship <laughs> yeah you know? yeah brought up something the other night you know we we are talking again and and she said, well, do you remember throwing the stool across the kitchen when you were 17? And I said, you know, I do not remember doing that. So I said, mom, this is what I'm saying. There are things that you're going to remember that I'm going to remember. And and that's just the truth of it. It reminds me of the story you told, Laura, when your dad was like, you know, when I'm feeling really shitty about my life, you know, she left me on Christmas. Right. And um, and so that's, you know, all of that to say, I, I really think that it's important for people listening to remember that we have got to be able to tell our truths and our stories, even if it means that it might um, it might hurt other people. And that's just as simple as it gets. Yep. I agree with that. And I've had to deal with that, too. And I think it's like it is it's, you know, for me, I've always been really clear, like whenever whenever I've written about um, like stuff with my mom or, you know, that this is that that it's not that I don't blame my mom. Like I don't and that's not what this is about. It's not about sitting around and saying, well, this person did this to me. It's more about being able to explain, you know, a part of you that's that's integral to you in your development and, and who you are. Um, and for me, it's never about trying to throw somebody out of the bus uh, ever. Um, it's always about making sense of what, what I experience from my point of view. And there's always another side to the story. Um, but no, I agree. I think that's such an important part or important point to make. Thanks for saying that. Me too. And thanks for saying that as well. And and I totally agree. I mean, it's just, you know, we've got to be able to to share it from our perspective, because that's really the only one we've got. I mean, we can certainly be able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and have compassion. Like I say, I look at my parents, and I'm thinking, my God, they were just doing the best they knew how to do. Yeah. I mean, 
I have not got children. I do not. I don't choose to have children. I admire and respect uh, parents. I can't believe the job that you do as parents. It is the hardest, most thankless job on earth. Just simply feeding, bathing, clothing, getting this person <laughs> through life to me is. I mean, I. I mean, kudos to all parents. I think it's the most thankless and amazing thing that people can do. I really, it's the job that just never, you know, it's never done. And, and so I, I, I respect it so much. And again, not being a parent myself, I mean, sure, I can sit there and point to all of these examples and it so, it may sound like I'm blaming or pointing a finger and really all it's doing is, is giving me a chance to reflect back and point to a situation or a feeling or something that has happened, an example, and to point to it to say, oh, maybe that's why, you know, that was part of my trajectory. Like, maybe that's why I went in that direction. And maybe if that had been different, I would have gone in a different, in a different direction. All that to say, I have no regrets about where I am right here and right now, because without all of that history, without all of those stories, all of those examples, I would not be sitting here on a podcast with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, totally agree. So, t so you are a teenager. Yep. So I'm 15 years old now and I've been in, uh, it's Waterloo, Ontario. So it's, uh, I live in sort of um, southeastern Ontario, Canada, which if you drew a straight line straight down, you'd hit New York City pretty much. Um, I lived west of that when I was uh, 15 years old. And so I'm living in this small town and I'm trying to become friends with people and wasn't really working. I wasn't really fitting in with the with the popular preppy kids. I tried it for a little while and, and uh, they just didn't fit me. I just, it didn't feel authentic to me. Authenticity, I guess, has always been a strong theme for me. I always wanted to feel like people wanted to have bigger conversations and sort of have more to say than talking about their Sperry Topsiders and their Polo Ralph Lauren sweaters. And I just wasn't into it. And so I found it much easier and I felt much more comfortable being surrounded by the, you know, pot smokers, the, smoke, the cigarette smokers and the drinkers. And the first time I took my first taste of alcohol. It was on Halloween and half the group was trick-or-treating. We were 15 years old and I thought that was pretty crazy that they were trick-or-treating, but <laughs> half of the group was trick-or-treating and the other half of our group had Mickey's of vodka. And that is my first drink that I ever had was I had a Mickey of vodka. It's what other kids were buying. And so that is what I had in my, uh, in my plaid jacket pocket walking around the city trick-or-treating with a Mickey of vodka and I drank it straight and I Ugh. loved it. I loved every single thing about it. That's I loved so the funny. way it burned, the way it burned my throat going down. I loved the way it smelled like rubbing alcohol. I loved the way it made me feel after literally two or three sips. I, I, I just knew this was my thing mm -hmm. and yeah. that was it. I believe that I was an alcoholic drinker from the first sip that I took, truly. I mean, I'd probably had sips of wine with uh, dinner with my parents or something. I don't know. But, you know, I'm only 15 years old at this time. I'm pretty young. And um, and so I, I didn't I didn't drink every night at that point. I mean, that's not that's not my story. But uh, but certainly that first taste, I can look back and say, yeah, I knew that that was something that I really liked. I liked the way that I could all of a sudden just drop my guard down. I could just say things that I'd wanted to say, but didn't have the balls to say. 
and I could do things that I wanted to do and I could feel sexy and, and desirable to the boys and I could fit in with this group of people that were badasses and sort of dangerous and naughty and and I liked it. I liked the way that that felt so much more than trying to squeeze into the preppy goody two-shoes group that just it it didn't seem to fit for me. And so I hid yeah. all of that from my parents. They had no idea that I was drinking at such a young age. And and again, I wasn't drinking every day for sure. So, you know, it would probably be on weekends and we would do parties. And I mean, I denied this. I mean, my parents thought I was a pretty good kid. And again, I was so... I love my dad so much. He and I had a really good bond and I never wanted to disappoint him. In fact, if anybody had ever asked me up until yesterday, what is the the worst thing that I can do? And I would answer you, it's to disappoint people. I, I hated the feeling of disappointing people. So I became a really good liar. And I would just, uh, I told my parents, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing anything bad. I wasn't dating. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested in boys at all. And I was just living this total facade in front of my parents. So sort of, again, to track back to my relationship with my mom, I mean, again, they didn't have a clue. I wasn't being honest with them. So, you know, it was pretty hard for them to be able to connect with me on an authentic level as well. But, um, so that's kind of the story of the beginning of my drinking life. And it just continued on. And probably by the age of 18 or 19, I was drinking probably most nights at that point. Wow. And I continued to drink from the age of likely 19 or 20, um, almost every single night until I quit at the age of 29. Wow. So it was pretty big from, from early on. So, so take us through sort of the end of your drinking, like what that looked like. And then when the food stuff started to, I mean, I'm sure it was always part of it, but how that, you know, where the light came on in terms of how that played into your, um, both Hmm. getting sober and your recovery, like Yep, you know what great I mean? Questions for sure. So um, when you say it was probably always part of it, interesting that I never would have put those things together until, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. So when I was younger, my mom was, a, you know, she called herself a gourmet cook. She was an excellent cook and she definitely taught me to eat properly and eating real food was always a part of our life we we dined out a lot we definitely went to fancy restaurants so we're still eating real food it wasn't fast food it wasn't junk food very rarely did we we were never allowed like mcdonald's was not something in our home and and cookies and candy were were sort of a rare treat one cookie in my lunch um at school so i i was i did i was raised by a mother who uh thank god for her and i love her dearly that she that she taught me that you are what you eat And it's truly a mantra that I live by today. And I didn't know that it was ever going to become something so big in my life back then. And I would always say, you are what you eat, whatever. Like I'd listen to her saying it and think, give me a break. What, what, I'm an apple? If I eat an apple, that's ridiculous. And now, I mean, we truly, I, I can't believe that more. That what I put in my body is, is my body. My body is what I put in my body. So I was certainly not there when I was drinking. I didn't equate the fact that when I was an alcoholic drinker, you know, drinking every single day and smoking cigarettes and just being really um, and allowing people into my body and doing things that, um, you know, I was extremely promiscuous as a teenager and just doing things that were just um, so against what what I wish that I would have done. But again, I have no regrets. It's the way that things played out. But um, I would have never known that this is sort of how I would now look at my body so differently than the way it was back 
then. Yeah, but yeah. so the end of my drinking, I mean, God, there could have been so many ends. The first end should have been, um, I was drinking with some friends. I had sort of broken up with a boyfriend and uh, I had rented a chalet for us for Christmas. And he and I, I, I broke up with him. So I invited some friends. And I, and I look back now and I realize I sort of wanted to do that. I wanted to party with these friends. <laughs> Yeah. So we get to the chalet and we're partying and I drive home from the bar with my girlfriend and we were just parked outside of the chalet. We were just continuing our conversation and I'm I'm buzzed, but I'm I'm in my looking back now, of course, I am drunk. But I, in my mind, I'm like, I am not even close. I mean, I was so frustrated that the cop came over, banged on the window, asked what we were doing. And I was like, get out of here. Like, we're just talking, not realizing that I was going to be charged with a Karen control charge because I was sitting in a car with it turned on because it's winter and it's freezing outside. So we were just right. sitting outside the friggin' chalet and I was like, I can't believe that this is happening. Oh yeah, I can say fucking chalet on the podcast. <laughs> um, and I'm so pissed off. I'm just like, I cannot believe this. So I get taken downtown, I get fingerprinted, I get thrown in the, the holding cell and I have to go through the paperwork and I'm literally just like, when can I get out of here to get back to the party? This is really pissing me off. So I finally get released and I get back to the party and I was charged with Karen control of a, of a motorized vehicle. And that meant that even though I hired a lawyer and tried to get out of it, I had to, um, I had to lose my license for a year. Wow. And that was really embarrassing. Is that like, it's not a DUI, it's something else? Well, it's not a DUI if you're not caught driving. Oh. Yeah. So this is why it was called a Karen control charge. So huh, I just, never you know, heard of that. No, me, I hadn't either. And, it, you know, this is back in whatever year we're talking about now. I was uh, I was probably 23 or 24 years old and I'm 44. So 20 years ago now. Yeah. And that was just, a, you know, it was it was a glitch that probably should have really w woken me up. And um, even when I think back to the way that I would continue to drink with my parents, to be honest with you, my parents were my best drinking buddies. Yeah. You know, we... Yeah. Yeah, like I say, we had a pub in every home. And I'm not talking like we had like a little bar with like we had we had, you know, um, what, what are they called? Olivia um, Pinnell will know the name of this, but jiggers. So jiggers all over the wall, meaning, you know, we have gin, vodka, rum, rye. And I used to empty them with my friends and fill them with tea and water. <laughs> I mean, yeah. stuff would be empty, and my dad would refill them mm -hmm. and not have a conversation with me. And I know that it was just because he just didn't want to have the conversation with me. And he probably thought that it was just a phase that would pass. And for, to be honest with you, he probably knew that his drinking behavior would then be questioned if he was questioning my drinking behavior. Right. My, my father later on in life uh, did go to treatment. So that is part of, of our story as well. But, um, but so, yeah, I mean, we sat in the pub and we smoked cigarettes and we went through two and three bottles of wine yep, yep. any night of the week. Like we're talking, that's a Wednesday. You know? I know, same yeah. family. <laughs> yep, I know, and I've I've read a lot of your your words, and and yeah, a lot of similarities that way. Yeah, I mean, it was just the way it was. I mean, my mother continues to drink and and to socialize, and you know, wine is just a it's just a part of their lives, and I and I get it, and that's just the world we live in, and um, I'm just so grateful to to be on the other side of it. I really, really am. But so that's my story when I'm 23 years old. So that would have been maybe uh, an indicator that, oh, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe I need to look at my drinking behavior. Maybe I need to change some things up. And really, all it did was ramp up my drinking. I don't quite know. Um, I, I didn't look at it that way at the time, but I do 
look back now and realize that's when it really started to increase for sure. So mm. now I'm drinking for sure every single night. I'm definitely not trying to moderate. I am just, you know, I'm drinking every night, but I'm also, I'm holding down a job and I'm doing all those things. I'm very high functioning. And, um, and, and so I continued drinking that way for several, for five more years. And there were other incidents. I mean, one night I drove home and I was, I knew I was really drunk. So I pulled over and I, of course, having gotten that uh, Karen control charge, I got out of the car this time and I just sort of sat on the sidewalk thinking, okay, I'm just need to pull myself together before I can get myself home. I passed out. Neighbors, Ugh. I guess, found me at three o'clock in the morning. I, and I wake up in the hospital. I have one shoe and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I look at the nurse. I'm like, where the fuck am I? What is going on? And she's like, you're in the hospital. You're okay. Like everything's fine. I'm just like, how do I get out of here? Like, get me out of here. And I said, where's my, sh where are my shoes? And she's like, well, here's one. I'm like, where is my other shoe? She can't find it. She's like, this has never happened. I'm like, this is a nightmare. Get me the hell out of here. And I literally just walked out of the hospital, walked with one shoe down the street and tried to figure out where my car was, could not for the life of me remember where it was. And I remember having to, I told my boyfriend at the time, um, you know, I got to figure out where my car is. I have no idea where I was last night. And so we drove around the city trying to figure it out. And for some reason, somehow, my mother must have had a sixth sense. She showed up at my door right before we were going to leave to find my car so she, you know, discovered that this is what was going on. So she was pretty upset, knew that clearly there was an issue. I had received a letter from my dad maybe a year prior to that with him saying that he was nervous. He was concerned about mm -hmm. my drinking. And he admitted that he knew that he had led me down the wrong path. You know, he felt very responsible for a lot of my drinking behavior and, uh, mm -hmm. and said that he was going to pledge to do a better job of modeling better behavior for me. I mean, at this time, I'm 28 years old. I mean... There's only right. so much modeling a, a parent can do at that point. But I respected that that's where he was coming from to the point that I ripped the letter up and threw it in the garbage and pretended <laughs> that it never was written. But okay. I have a question for you. Did you think anything was wrong? You know, I think we all do if we get really honest about it. I think we all do. Um, there were many, many, many mornings of hangovers, of rushing to get the hell out of my, you know, my apartment to get to my office for eight o'clock in the morning where I would say, damn it, I wasn't going to drink last night. Like, I wasn't yeah. going to drink. How am I so fucking hungover? Yeah. Like, how did I do this again? I have a big meeting at 10 a.m. How am I going to pull myself together and get this shit done? And, you know, the quiet moments, even in the evenings, you know, when I'd be drinking, I'd just be sort of like, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And I don't want to be doing it, but I want it so bad. And it was just, I mean, that's just the pull of addiction. And, um that, you know, I think we all can relate to that feeling where it's just, it yeah. pulls you yeah. in and, and, you know, as much as you have all the good intentions in the world and as much as you, you know, you sort of hate yourself every time you let yourself down and every time you make a mistake, you're so embarrassed. And I mean, I've said that I've done, I have said and done things that I'll never be able to take those words back. And I know that, you know, words have such a lasting impact. I mean, good or bad, we, we say something beautiful to somebody. And I think that's why I'm so, I'm so passionate now about giving people compliments. Like I'll see them on the street and I'll be like, I, you look amazing. Like your style is just right on. I'd love it, you know, or great boots or whatever. You're and highly just, I, complimentary. I, you always like make me blush every time you ever say anything. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, that's like what I associate with you actually, um, is just your, your generosity of, you know, compliments and kindness. 
I really appreciate you saying that. And, and um, at the same time, I also feel like it is part of my people-pleasing personality that I'm <laughs> still struggling with and working on. And yeah. it's been part of my trajectory as far as, like I said to you when I was young, just always trying to fit in and be liked. And, uh, and my dad yeah. was very much the biggest fan of everybody. I mean, if anybody had good news, he'd be the one shouting it from the rooftops. Like that person yeah. didn't have to do a thing. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I've, I've taken on that part of his personality. I think we are very similar, he and I. And, um, and it's something that I check a lot more now. So I used to compliment people even if I didn't really mean it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm very mindful that when I'm giving someone a compliment or with, when I'm sharing with them the way that I feel about them, I, I mean it. And I really want them to feel my, um, my genuineness and my authenticity with that compliment. But I also have to check myself that I don't um, just gush over people and then and, and feel like I'm giving more than I'm receiving energetically. Isn't that interesting? I, it's so funny. It's something that I've, I mean, I'm, I'm a recovering people pleaser too. And I think for me, what I have to do and and what's helped me a lot is when I start to write something, I always check in with myself. Why am I saying this? And is Mm -hmm. this what I actually feel? And I won't like, I like, if I'm not feeling something, even if like there's, there's admiration or something, if I don't feel it, I don't write it. Um, I'm very, very much like clipped with, like what uh, what I'm putting out there is actually something that I have to give, and I think that's such an important point of of knowing the yeah. distinction between just saying something for some reason beyond um, you know um, you know for for the for getting something you know or for um, for something that's just not actually genuine flow from you. Um, but that's that's such a good point. I really love that you said that too, and because I. You know, when I think about the two of you, I think about the leaps and bounds that you two have taken in a short time in your sobriety. And that's why that post that I wrote where I included your names, um, you know, just over a year ago now, it was all about I was sober since the age of 29, but I feel like I only just began my recovery. And, And I don't mean to discount all of the years that I've put in because I have put in the time and I've done a lot of work. But but I truly feel like recovery comes with, you know, so much self-awareness. And I think that as much as I was, I was building those tools and I was putting that, you know, all together throughout all of those years, it really wasn't until I started my blog and started really sharing who I really am authentically and told the truth to people because I was still hiding. And you two just sort of out of the gate came out, no holds barred, and you're just showing off you know, showing the world, you know, who you really are right out of the gate. And I just, I admire and respect it so much that you're not going to waste a bunch of time. And I don't look at any time as wasted, but I really, I think it's an amazing service that you're doing to yourself and to others by very quickly coming out. It's amazing. So I just think it's great to, um, just to sort of really, you know, kind of know who you are. I just, I love that you know who you are and you know who you're serving and you know what you're doing. And, and, uh, and I just admire and respect so much what the two of you are doing. And I can't wait to see all the other things that you're both going to do. I have no doubt you are going to surpass all of your own expectations as well. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, So yeah, so I'm 29 years old now. I'm dating this guy and there really isn't a lot of physical attraction, to be honest, on my part. I thought he was a super nice guy. We met at a Super Bowl party. Of course, I'm drunk 
and um, and having a great time. You know, I'm having a good time. We're we're all partying, and and uh, one of my girlfriends said he wants your number, and I was just like, mm, that guy, like, mm, not sure. And um, by the end of the night, of course, I was giving him my number. So we decided to go skiing together. And I liked the fact that he skied because he was one of the only people that I met in that area of Ontario, which doesn't have a lot of skiing, um, that skied. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And I hadn't skied for many years, pretty much since that chalet trip when I got my uh, care and control charge. I hadn't really skied much. And so we went skiing together as our first date. And it was a lot of fun. And I really liked him. I thought he was a really nice guy. But the sexual chemistry was, was, to me, it was just not there. He felt something for me for sure. And, um, and I liked that. I liked that he, that he was attracted to me, but I just wasn't really feeling it with him, but I thought, you know what, let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. So after a few weeks we were, you know, sort of dating, going out to dinner. Um, but when I would asking him about, you know, are you, are you not ordering a beer? And he was like, no, I don't really drink. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is never going to work. You know, this is just not going to work. So I went over to his place one night and I brought uh, a 12 pack of beer. It was a Wednesday night. And at that point, I was on to beer because I was kind of trying to moderate. I was trying to figure out what I could drink that I could sort of keep a handle on. And if I could count the number of beers, that was better than an entire bottle of wine or, or um, you know, a big bottle of vodka. So it was okay. If I, if I can, it allowed me to continue drinking for a long period of time and not get super drunk. So that was kind of where I was at with my drinking, wanting to use um, beer. And that was only when it was with other people. I mean, I, I, of course, would go home and continue to drink on my own. So I went over to his place. I had a 12 pack of beer. And he said to me, as I was cooking dinner at his place, he said, um, so is this what you do every night? And I said, uh, like, what do you mean? And he said, so, so you drink every night? And I said, well, everybody drinks every night. Like, you are the only one that drinks a Diet Coke with dinner. Like, no one does that. And he was like, yeah, people do that. And I said, yeah, no, they don't. And so two days later, I drove over to his place and I said to him, you know, this just isn't working. I'm not feeling uh, enough of an attraction to you. I think you're a super nice guy, really like you, but this just isn't going to go anywhere. And I pulled away and drove off and, uh, and he was texting me the entire way home. So I pulled over and I read all of his texts and he was just like, you know, I really feel that there is something here and, um, you know, I really want you to give me a chance. And I just sort of messaged him back and I just said, I just need, I just need some time. Fast forward to now we end up, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going out for dinner with his next door neighbor who I've become a little bit friendly with. We, you know, we've spent some time together. Nice lady. She and her husband lived right next door. So we played cards with them and they would have a beer if I was, uh, if I was there, otherwise they really didn't drink either. And I was like, what world are these people living in? So anyway, we, um, we decided, she and I decided to go out for dinner together and um, after the first bottle of wine and just a couple of appetizers, I said, do you want to get another bottle of wine? And she agreed. And she was a bigger girl. She was a lot taller than I was. And um, she could hold her liquor. She, she wasn't a big drinker, but um, she could definitely hold her liquor better than I could at that time. I was definitely at the end of my, of my drinking life. And alcohol was hitting me a lot harder at that time. And so we're on our second bottle of wine and it's the best bottle of Pinot Grigio I have ever tasted. <laughs> and it was just going down like water. It was a hot summer night. Uh, it was right after work. Um, it was a Monday night 
and it was in you know late July. And so it was a beautiful evening. We had a great conversation. I said to her, you know, I'm really sorry that I'm breaking up with this guy, but you know, it just what I just wasn't feeling it. I just wasn't feeling the attraction. I just didn't really feel like he was even all that into me. And I definitely wasn't feeling all that into him. And as much as I really like him as a person, it's just not going to go anywhere. And she was disappointed. She really thought that we had something going and she really likes him and she really liked me and, and she really liked that we were kind of becoming friends. And so after, you know, two bottles of wine and we're smoking cigarettes all night, uh, she says to me, or I said to her, um, well, maybe it can work. Maybe it can work. I got all melancholy <laughs> and decide that I'm going to, instead of drive home to my apartment, or of course I should have walked home, I can throw a rock at my apartment building from the restaurant we were at. Instead of making that good choice, I got in my car and decided to follow her home. And of course she lives next door to him. So I was going back to see him and we pulled out of the parking lot and I'm behind her and I see that there's going to be a yellow light coming up but I think she's going to go through it and she doesn't and so I have to slam on my brakes I don't react in time and I and I rear end her not enough to really damage her car but there was enough of an impact that it there was a sound and there was a dent and the guy behind me rear ends me all of a sudden so I'm in my car shit 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 what the fuck am I going to do I get out of my car. The guy behind me looks at my car, looks at his, takes off. He doesn't want to deal with what's going to happen. And before I can even understand what's going on, before we can even formulate a plan, because we're thinking, can I just pull over? You know, let's just pull over. Let's figure this thing out. The cops are there. So the accident happened literally within earshot of the cop shop. I don't know if they were already on route, if they were in their cars. I don't even know how it all happened. Again, I'm pretty drunk. We've had two bottles of wine. And, um, and that was it. That was my DUI. The problem was when I got down to the <sighs> station, get my fingerprinting done and get put in the holding cell for the entire night, which is just disgusting. And I know that you know what that's like, Laura, just such a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, the worst thing is, is that I'm thinking, fuck, I got a care and control charge less than five years ago. So I am praying that they think this is my first offense. And anyway, so long story short, I go through the entire process of having to go to court and it's looking good. It's looking like they think it's my first offense. So I get home and a few weeks later, I get a letter in the mail and I was not so lucky. So they knew that I it was not my first uh, drinking and driving you know, char- type of charge. And so now I've lost my license for three years And when I get my license back, I have to have an ignition interlock device installed in my car for three more years. Oh, God. Three years. Uh. Yeah. So I'm the kind of person who, you know, I alluded to this at the beginning, um, but, but appearances were... Appearances were more important in my household and in my family growing up than any kind of real feelings. I mean, if we looked clean and if we looked pristine and if we all looked perfect on the outside that was all my parents wanted you know they just wanted to make sure that we all looked the part right so not being the part not not being able to fake this anymore um not being able to hide this really anymore so that one year when I lost my license I mean my mom you know we didn't tell anybody we just sort of let my friend use my car for a year and uh I worked within walking distance of work so I was able to just do that and uh, we just kind of scooted that under the rug. And this time around, I think everybody, you know, well, I, I knew that this was this was the end for me. This was the end. I knew that I had to change 
or I was going to die. So, I mean, of course, the morning after I, you know, my, my, my now boyfriend, because I've decided, okay, now I love you because you are the only fucking rock in my life right now. You're the only person in my life right now. So he and I did end up having an amazing relationship. And I say amazing relationship because he was the exact right person to be in my life during the hardest, most tumultuous, scariest time of my life. And I am grateful to him every single day. I love him more than I could ever love anybody on this planet because of what he did for me during those first hours. I mean, those first hours and days, I was so raw that um, it almost brings me to tears and I'm not going to cry, but I wrote about it on a blog post. If anyone wants to read about that moment. You can cry, by the way. It's kind (laughs) of like, it's kind of like a necessary (laughs) right (laughs) yeah Yeah. um you know I was suicidal in those first hours yeah yeah well you think your life is over over. like what's the point what is the point if you're not going to be able to drink and not just not going to be able to drink for me I drove I was I was um being groomed to become partner of the executive search firm that I was working with and I knew that I would have to quit that job I would have to get rid of my car I did not know what the fuck I was going to do with my life. Um, and I had to make a lot of decisions really, really quickly. And so, you know what? I got to work. I mean, I, I was in the fetal position for a good day. And I'll never forget him coming home at lunchtime and yanking the covers from off of me and saying, you know what? You didn't hurt anybody but yourself. You are here. You are alive. So suck it up. And figure it out, but you are not going to kill it. Cause I just said, I'm going to kill myself. Like if like, I, like I can't, I don't, I, I am, this is too big. Mm-hmm. I don't have the tools. I don't have a clue how to do this. Right. And so he was just so amazing at just sort of shaking me and just saying, you know what? Life is too short. Don't even think about, uh, you don't have the right to leave this earth just because you've made a stupid mistake. Anyway, so uh, anyway, yeah, he was awesome. Amazing. But I did know. I knew that I had to quit drinking. I knew I was an alcoholic. There was absolutely no doubt about it. Um, it was just it was as simple. It was as clear to me as it has, had ever been. I, I'd known it in my heart for, for many years. But this was just me saying, oh, my God, how much more? What more do I need? How many more lessons do I need to learn? I've been in the hospital trying to find my car, driving around the city for an entire half day, you know, right. you know, just a few months prior. You know, a few years ago, I got that care and control charge. I mean, wh- what more do I need? I've, I've embarrassed myself. I've thrown up. I've, you know what I mean? Like, come yeah, on. Yeah. Get yeah. your fucking shit together. And that's exactly what I decided to do. And then four days later, I drank again. Yeah. So, so what happened? Days, like, you yeah. were just, yes. Yeah, so what happened? Yeah. So four days later, we uh, we go to his parents' cottage, and it's a family weekend. And um, I didn't know how to not drink. I did not know how to say no. Yeah. I didn't have those tools. I didn't have those words. And I wanted to drink. I right. wanted to drink. You know, it had been four days. That's the longest I had ever gone without drinking since I could remember. So right. I wanted to drink, and I had too many drinks, and I went back to the bedroom, and before I did, I passed his, at the time she was 11, his 11-year-old niece, which is the age my niece is now, and I passed her sort of walking into the bedroom to pass out because I knew I was drunk, and I'll never forget sort of her looking at me saying, are you okay? And mm. and I'm just like, yeah, I'm fine, and of course, I have no idea what I must have looked like to her or sounded like to her, and it it devastates me to this day to think of what she saw in that moment 
regardless, I pass out and um, the next morning we are supposed to be playing golf at seven o'clock in the morning. And so I get out of bed and I can barely function and let alone play a round of golf. And the woman that we're playing golf with is sort of like, wow, didn't actually think we'd see you this morning. So I'm like, <sighs> what did I do? What did I say? Oh, what oh, kind God. of space? Oh, it was just horrendous. Just the feeling of shame and, and just um, embarrassment and just sheer humiliation. And so we play this round of golf and we just, you know, I just get through that day and I'll never forget him looking at me. We went into the, you know, we were in the bedroom just changing from our, our golf stuff. And he looked at me and he said, are you done now? <sighs> and I looked at him and I said, I'm done now. And that was it. And that's the last time I, I took a drink until I did relapse when I moved to Ottawa uh, 10 years ago. When I moved here by myself, I was on my own and feeling like maybe I could become norm, you know, a normie. Uh, maybe I could just, you know, do it again. Uh, when I first moved here, I was really white knuckling it. I was, you know, rushing home, um, you know, from work, just everyone going out for drinks, inviting me out. I'm the new girl. Everyone wants to get to know me. And um and so, uh, yeah, so I relapsed again, but, but I can backtrack to what happened when I, when I first quit drinking. So I'll do that. Do you want me to just keep going? <laughs> well, so just, so yeah, because I want to make sure we, we get like, this is so important. And I want to make sure we get to the, um, to give, give like give, giving you enough time to pay tribute to what you are doing now with the, with the food and the sugar. Yep. But I want to know. What quickly, like what happened when, with the, with, when you started drinking again, when you moved back? Cause I think it's important to say what that was like. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is now 10 years later. So, so when I first quit drinking, when he asked me if I was done, I quit the drinking and I decided that I had to, of course, completely change my life. So I reeducated myself. I went to business college. I got three degrees in three years. I went on to do a university degree. I ended up just, you know, really immersing myself in this entirely new life. And I immersed myself in what I decided to do was tell people that the reason I didn't drink was because I was super healthy. So that was the guys that I was hiding behind. I was telling people, you know, in, in fact, I was drinking non-alcoholic beer in front of my close friends, hoping that they didn't notice that it said non-alcoholic, that the Beck's beer. And yeah. so I'd be at, you know, I had a wedding to go to shortly after that, um, that incident at his cottage. And I said, you know what, we're going to just bring our own beer to the wedding and, uh, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to drink this stuff. And so that's what I did for a long time. That is part of my story. I know for some people it, um, triggers and I don't drink it anymore, but it was definitely a part of my early recovery. I, I drank non-alcoholic beer. Like it was going out of style. I would literally drink 24 of them in a night. It was wow. insane. Yeah. Like I would drink it like it was, I, I was, I just, I was craving it the way I was craving alcohol, but it really kind of got me through that first hurdle. So that is part of, of my recovery journey. And it really did help me. And now, like I say, I would, I just don't have any desire to drink it at all, but it was well, really Well, it important. also actually has alcohol in it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, there's, you know, like, I, I think it's not just like a, a mental thing of it's it also actually has alcohol in it but anyway so I want to know and what, it does but I just do want to make that point that you know it does but I mean even after drinking like 12 of them I mean there is no you know I definitely wasn't feeling any of the effects that I wanted to be feeling from drinking right. I mean that's a lot of effort to to yes. even put on a slight buzz oh. but still I think my point is that um what what did you do like what was did you 
do 12 steps? Did you do any sort of, you know, formal thing in terms of your sobriety? Were you, were you not recognizing it at all aside from your boyfriend? Was there people that, that knew? Very few. Very yeah. few. So I was super mired in shame. I mean, for sure, shame is the, is the biggest part of, of the, le- the learning for me. So when I, um, like I say, I was, I was hiding it from my friends. I finally opened up to my close-knit uh, circle of girlfriends and told them the truth. And, and one of them had already come out um, not long, you know, maybe a few years prior, saying that she was struggling with alcohol. So, uh, it, you know, sh- for sure, she was kind of like, oh, my gosh, amazing. You know, we can help each other. She did 12 step. I did not. I was very much hiding it when I went to school. You know, I'm in college. Everyone's going to the pubs. I'm not. I'm just rushing home to do my homework. I never admitted it to anybody. I never talked about it with anybody other than my boyfriend at the time, my my parents a little bit, but I didn't want to bog them down with it. They were very... Um, my, my dad was drinking more and more and more at that point. He had retired and he was suffering with depression. And so alcohol was uh, was increasing in his life during the time where, for me, I was trying to get rid of it. And then he did quit drinking for three years. And during that time, he um, it, it did not help the symptoms of his depression. It made them worse. He was feeling worse. He was literally just a dry drunk, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard that term. He just was, he had stopped drinking as an act of solidarity with me. And, uh, and it didn't, it didn't work the way I think we all had hoped that it would work. He gained a lot of weight. He felt really bad about himself and things kind of spiraled out of control. So, well, yeah, no. he wasn't, you can't, you know, it's like yeah. the drinking is just one tiny piece. It's just that, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So no, I was not sharing it with anybody. I was hiding it. And that's why I had to figure out how can I make sense of this? How can I, I didn't even understand that you can just say, I don't drink like that to me, just those words would not come out of my mouth. Just, you know, mm-hmm. I just choose not to drink, like knowing that that was a lie for me and knowing that that just wasn't my truth. And I guess there was a part of me that felt so inauthentic with even trying to say that. So for me, it was very much, I am going to hide behind the, the guys that I am a health and fitness fanatic. So if mm-hmm. I'm going to hide behind this guys, then I sure as fuck better figure out what health and fitness is all about. So I started <laughs> reading about it. I started learning more about it. So funny. Oh my God, Sarah. Yeah. Like, I'm going to create yeah. a whole persona to support this thing. Totally. Totally. And again, like I said to you very early on in our conversation today, I mean, I wouldn't be here talking to you today if not for all of that stuff that happened. But Oh, I know. It's perfect. It's It's so crazy. It is crazy. So when I look back now, I think it's crazy. But at the time, it made total sense. So all of a sudden, because I mean, I dropped, I wasn't, I wasn't overweight, you know, I wasn't overweight by by society standards of overweight. I hate even talking about weight. And I refuse to talk about it in my book. I refuse to talk about it with my clients. I I hate talking. Weight is not the issue. You know, it's not, and food is not the issue. It's what it represents to us, but regardless. So I really wanted to learn how to, you know, really cook whole clean foods. I learned how to exercise with a trainer. So now I'm building muscle. And so I did, I dropped some weight pretty quickly. I was probably um, in and around 140 pounds at my highest, highest weight that I ever was. And I dropped very quickly. Uh, at the end of my drinking, I was probably 130. I dropped to probably 115. So I was lean. I, 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 I was all of a sudden lean. And so I thought I'm going to use this 
to, you know, to, to support this guy that I'm going to be this healthy and fit person. So I started working out with a trainer and building muscle and I started eating properly and really uh, learning about food. And I tried all different types of uh, diets. Like I tried vegetarianism. I tried paleo. Like I, I wanted to try all of these different things so that I would really understand more and see what made me feel the best. And that's exactly what I did. So I went to school for business. I was studying and enjoying that. And, uh, and on the side, I was uh, really focused on making myself feel better. So I felt amazing. I felt better than I had felt ever. I was proud of myself for the first time ever. I felt so much self-respect. I was showing myself love in every decision that I was making regarding my food and my and my exercise. I started, um, I learned about the secret and I started, you know, reading about the law of attraction and I started realizing that, you know, really truly we are what we think and, and we really can create, we can co-create our lives. And I started reading, you know, Wayne Wayne Dyer and Eckhart Tolle and, and, and you know it was just all hold of on hold things. on real quick Sarah um because I want to ask you a lot about this but also Megan the girl that works for us on the podcast she did the sugar cleanse with us and I want her to join for this part because she's the one that did it she's the one that did the sugar cleanse to the tea and she's also a food person so I want I'm going to just dial her in really quick um but I also wanted you to go back on what you were just talking about real quick but one second okay hey girlfriend okay. hi hi Hi, hi. Hi, So, okay. So at this point, we have Megan Carrier joining us. Megan is our admin. She's my admin at Hip Sobriety. Well, she's not my admin. She's like my right-hand person. Um, but she also works for us on the show, and she did the sugar cleanse with us. And as we're getting into talking about food, Megan's going to join us for this because this is also her her work. Um, and she also did the sugar cleanse, and she did it better than, than uh, Laura and I combined. Um, but I want to talk to you about this. So when you started, what you were just talking about, when you got into eating and, and you said, you said a couple things that were really interesting. You said that you started to love yourself by loving yourself for what you were through the act of putting things in your body that that represented self-love, that you started loving yourself through feeding yourself and feeding yourself in, in a different way. But also, it seems like at this point in your journey, this is also where you got into, I mean, that's also, it sounds like my early recovery from alcohol, which was, I got into Eckhart Tolle, and I got into the law of attraction, and I got, you know, and so it seems like it was at this point that you started to really, like, kind of catch a, like, catch a long wind, right? Like, catch something different. Is that, is that That's fair to say? That's totally fair to say. That's exactly what was happening. So I was all of a sudden putting it all together that, you know, the idea that we are what we eat was really starting to resonate with me. I was fully getting on board with um, manifestation. So I was almost playing games with it. I would say to myself, I want that scholarship and I'm going to get that scholarship. And here's what I'm going to do to get that scholarship. And I'm going to get it by this date. And I would write things on calendars and I would write things down and I would affirm things and I would reaffirm things. And I was just manifesting this stuff all over the place. And I would literally say to my boyfriend, like, I can't believe that I'm, that all of these things that I want to happen are happening. You know, I, I, I received 
every scholarship that I asked for. I received every single award of the college. I received the highest award of the college and said a speech in front of 2,000 people because I was pushing myself so hard because I was realizing that I had wasted a shit ton of time over my drinking career. And you know what? The only person that can create the kind of life that I want to create is me. And it all starts, in my opinion, with the way that I treat my body. My body is what I have. It's the vessel that I have to carry my spirit through this world. And for me, when when people fuel their bodies with junk food and crap and shit and they feel tired and shitty and they aren't able to produce the kind of results in their life that they're looking for, right away I will talk to them about change the food. If we change what we eat, we change our lives. It's just as simple as that. I am so passionate about it. I see examples of it in my everyday life. And I am not talking about weight. I am never talking about weight. I'm never talking about looking like a certain person, having a certain body type. Every single body type out there can be the healthiest version of itself. A Cameron Diaz style of body type is never going to have a Kim Kardashian set of boobs and butt. It's never going to happen. We need to get away from this, you know, crazy idea that we can we can look like everybody else. We all know the comparison is the thief of joy. And I look truly to this vessel that I have that I am so blessed to have. This amazing vessel, this heart that beats beneath my chest, the cells in my body that are that are, you know, everything is working together. That all of the myriad functions that my body completes every millisecond of every single day and all it wants all it wants is to work for me. All it is asking for in return is that I fuel it with what it needs to live. And we live in a society that is, we are bombarded by temptation and garbage. The sugar industry has lied to us since the 60s. We were told that fat was, you know, was that fat was to be vilified. Harvard scientists were paid by the sugar, by the sugar industry. It's called Project 226. And they were told to skew their findings and tell us as a society as a whole, that it was saturated fat that was at the root of heart disease, hypertension, mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes. Yeah. They were told to lie to us. And so what happens when we take out fat from everything? Because if you remember back to, you know, everything was fat. <laughs> oh my God, it's totally snack wells. Totally I didn't eat wells. any fat for my, I was, I didn't eat any fat in high school. I, um, I actually like, I probably had about like uh, 10 fat grams. Like I counted fat grams. I didn't count calories. And I used yeah. to have like about 10 oh, fat grams a day. I know. Probably like 400 grams of sugar. Yeah. 400 <laughs> grams of sugar. And I mean, when we're talking fat grams, what quality of fat are we eating in junk food? I mean, it is hydrogenated fat, the kind that turns into a trans fat. I mean, it yeah. is the crap shit. So all I ever, ever want to share and impart to people is truly fuel your body with what it knows how to use. A car does not drive on tomato juice. A I do have to say one thing, though, with this, and that is, you know, for me... When I, you know, I haven't, my path was not from eating healthy. My path um, and my happiness and my, you know, I put, you know, for me it was like kundalini yoga um, and, and um, you know, and not, okay, a couple things. One is I think for me I couldn't have done a change in diet after like at the beginning of recovery. I couldn't have taken out alcohol and then and then taken out, you know, cigarettes and then taken out pot and then taken out bulimia and also been concerned with like that was like the lowest priority for me. It was just Why? 
Because I was too busy saving my life because I did, because all I gave a fuck about was not waking up in the morning and drinking alcohol. And then all I gave a fuck about was not smoking 20 cigarettes, you know, every three days and not like smoking pot throughout the day. And so for me, it was all I could do. But can you also see that if you had somebody sharing with you that, that a really healthy, um, um, positive way for you to support your recovery would be to nourish yourselves with foods that would help you to get through those hard days, that early, that, that early recovery, and then continuing on with those habits. Like, I just feel like there's just not enough. There isn't enough information about it because there, we are bombarded with 17,000 food like products that hit the shelves every single year that are created to have what's called the bliss point, the perfect amount of fat, sugar, and salt to make it truly addictive. No, I get that. I get that. I get that. But I do think that for me, it wasn't a matter. I think that some of it's important. And I do believe like getting the, like starting your day with protein and not, you know, like managing your blood sugar and, you know, looking at your neurochemicals and trying to balance your hormones. I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done, but I also think fuck Anybody that's going to tell me when I'm recovering and doing the hardest thing of my life that I'm also not going to eat brownies with my family or ice cream for dinner sometimes or what, whatever, the, even if I know that it's awful for me. Um, I think like what I'm saying is I was saving my life and doing the best that I could at the time and that adding in something on top of it, like also changing my diet was just was just not going to happen. I understand where you're coming from totally. And I imagine that most people, a lot of people feel that way. And I just, I, I, I invite you and I invite people listening to think that, um, that when you give up, you know, it might feel like you're giving up so many things and people will often say to me, you know, I had a girl that said to me not long ago, Oh my God, you don't have it so bad. And I thought, so you think I've been having it so bad all these years because she was tasting a recipe that I had made and she was like, that's delicious. So here's the thing. I am not talking about sacrifice, starvation and deprivation. I'm talking about having more awareness about what we are putting in our body to realize that it truly does affect the way we feel. So in early recovery, if we truly do want to feel the best that we possibly can because we feel like fucking shit then it is an amazing way to hack the system. I tell people that, you know what, if if that's way too hard, then start exercising then. Like, you've got to do something to nourish your body. And I find that when people hack it by using exercise, it's a great way to then say, well, I've just done a workout. Maybe I won't eat the whole plate of brownies. I might just have one. And here's the thing. I don't have a problem with brownies. I don't have a problem with ice cream. I don't have a problem with pizza, cookies, candy. I really don't. I just don't want to see all of that being eaten for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then dessert. Like, let's keep dessert dessert. Let's, you know, let's let's remember that we are trying to feel the best way that we can feel, and we can truly help ourselves to heal through using food. And, and so I understand completely what you're saying, like, screw that, I'm not going to give up everything. But to me, it's not about giving up everything. It's about giving myself the most incredible gift that I can give myself. And yes, quitting drinking, that's huge. I mean, but when we look at kids at, you know, 10, 11 years old, developing fatty liver disease, the same exact, you know, condition that we get that we see in long term alcoholics, this is an issue. It is a drug like anything else. And I think that if we truly want to talk about getting away from addictive drugs, we need to consider sugar and put it in that same boat. 
Well, I want to talk about, I want to get into what you're, you know, like how you came up with, um, with, with your sugar challenge and, and, and the work that you do. And then I want to talk about, you know, Laura's experience on it and Megan, Megan's experience on it and my experience yeah. on it. But I think like there's an, there's a couple important distinctions to make. And, um, and, and I'm also, this is what Megan's work. This is what she studies is what, um, and her passion. And so the, for me, I think that there's an important distinction here. I think like when we're talking about uh, the American diet and how Americans eat and what's in our food and GMOs and, and factory farming and, um, you know, and the toxicity levels in our food, it's a very real thing, right? Like what we're, when we're talking about like the shit that exists out there that we subsist on and, and all of the different issues that it causes. Um, it's a very real thing. Just like stress is a very real thing. I think that there is, that 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 the health of of you know us in general is a concern and a lot of it has to do with many things including like toxic products that we have in our homes and we put on our bodies and I could go on and on and on that is one thing and so I think to say like and to advocate for being careful and 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 being conscious of what we teach our children and also our awareness around what we put in our body is one thing but there's also this other issue that i think is is that came up big time when Laura and i said we were doing a sugar cleanse which is that women have been taught for a very long time that their worth is tied up in their beauty and we have died for that and we have I have been dieting since I can remember I took diet pills in the fifth grade I have never had an uncomplicated meal I have never had an uncomplicated relationship with food I have puked my guts out I have purged and binged and purged and starved and done whatever I could I've taken diuretics I have you know like gone through periods where I couldn't stop exercising and I know um you know Megan has had stuff and Laura's had stuff and I from writing about eating disorders recently many people many 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 of us I don't know one woman that doesn't have a, a, a you know an uncomplicated relationship with food to say the least so I think there is this idea of we do better we know better we have awareness around food but also all we have ever had is awareness around food all we have ever had is is some sort of shit shoved down our throats about how we should look and and what you know how we should feel in our genes and that our worth is based on our beauty and so when we get into it I think and this is how this is how what I feel we have to be careful about what we what we what we how we tell women to approach this and I think whenever it gets into um whenever it gets into you have to do this versus doing something for me what's worked for me is is listening to my body and what my body wants and that means for me what that has meant is not being a disciplinarian with it and telling it what it can't have because when I tell it what it can't have all at once is that thing that it can't have um and so Anyway, so that's, that's, you know, just. So I totally respect where you're coming from and I can understand it 100%. And what I really am trying to help women, especially and, and men out there to get to is a freedom around food, a less complicated relationship around food. Because here's the thing, you know, people in the North, they eat protein and blood only. I mean, this is their diet. It's real food to them. Like that, that, that's just simply eating real food. In other civilizations, you know, in other cultures, I mean, it's different. It's different real food. But the, 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 the truth of the matter is, is that our bodies are, are designed to work on eating food. 
And the problem in society is that we see food-like products and think they are food. And they are simply not food. And if we can just get back to basics and get this really down, broken down into a simplified level, I think we can really come around to the idea that there is a lot more freedom in being able to, I don't weigh my food. I don't count calories. I have never been on a diet. I don't weigh myself. I don't, I don't measure myself. I don't, I have no interest in any of that. There was a time when I was really working out with a trainer when I got super lean, I was referring to it earlier, that I really, you know, I was being much more strict about my my calorie intake. I was, you know, noted, I was making sure my portions were fairly small and I was making sure that I was really sort of vigilant about the timing of my eating and I was exercising to, you know, once or twice a day and doing all of these things. And I was really enjoying that time in my life. I wanted to see how far I could take my, my body. I wanted to see how, how many muscles I could develop. I wanted to, I was interested in that and I really enjoyed that. And then there was a, you know, a period after that, I met my boyfriend now and he and I are still together and, and we started dating and I didn't want to have to be so regimented. So I wasn't I we started you know no, I wasn't being so fixated on portion size anymore and I wasn't going to the gym twice a day it would be more like we'd go for a bike ride and we would do other things I think the thing is is that we have to get realistic about our goals for ourselves and what we you know you know sure we have to think about what do we want to you know to look like as far as not weight but how do we want to feel in our bodies and and when we nourish them with real food when we truly care for our bodies using food i'm just i'm just suggesting it as a tool to use in our lives to feel the best that we can feel and it and it and it always translates into more energy more vi vibrancy more vitality and that's all different kinds of diets like i said there are so many different there's 7 billion people on the on the planet there are 7 billion diets no, there's no one size fits all and i don't suggest you know, for people that have a, a history with eating disorders, which, as we know, is related to obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, that is a an issue that, you know, we need to tread lightly with that when it comes to trying to do anything where it feels like deprivation or or sacrifice or uh, limiting. And I'm, I'm not or on the other side, extremism, because I think also people yeah. I personally can get super carried away. And that's where like I can get into complete and total like having to execute it perfectly, which comes out of like a perfect perfectionism streak um but well, just to to kind of move this forward because we're we're in now um uh, let's yep, um sure. I want to talk I, I do want to talk about um the sugar cleanse and I want Megan to be able to talk about her experience on it and Laura um and and but I do want to talk about you know how you how you came up with this um and and also um how how it worked for you and and, and your relationship with with uh, sugar are you, I, do you want me to answer that or do you want the girls to go first? Well, I'm curious of like, so, so I'm curious of, of why you came up with that, um, in particular, why, why, why sugar? Um, and I what, mean, it's yeah. simply it's because, you know, food is broken into one of three macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are broken into simple and complex. This is not news probably to anybody. So the, the point is, is that when we are eating junk food, it is essentially, you know, 99% of the time, it is just a simple carbohydrate. So it is spiking our insulin. Our, our pancreas then gets recruited to release the hormone or, you know, so it's our pancreas is recruited to release the hormone insulin, which brings down our blood sugar. That's its only job is to regulate it. And it's causing fatty liver disease. It's ca causing visceral fat, which is suffocating our organs. And I'm just interested in helping people to see that when we have those spikes and crashes, spikes and crashes all day long, from the 
the foods that we're choosing from morning to night, that is where we really get into trouble and it becomes more and more of an addiction. And so I, for me, it just became really obvious that I would call the book, you know, kick the sugar challenge, but really it's about self-love and showing ourselves that we can truly nourish our bodies using food and nurture our spirit using using the tool of food and to develop more freedom around it. And it's not supposed to be about starvation and sacrifice. I say it a thousand times in the book. We are, we are making recipes that are delicious that you could, that I literally have been eating for 15, you know, 14 years. Um, I've been eating this. I mean, we're eating spaghetti and meat sauce. We're you know, like, we're, it's not boiled chicken and asparagus every single day. And we're not portioning things out. We're not measuring things. We're not weighing food. We're not being super strict about anything. We are, eating a lot of the foods that that already that already taste good and that we continue can continue to eat for the rest of our lives we're just really focusing on lowering as many or lessening as many sugar responses as we can because just like with alcohol we get a little taste of sugar we want a little more and and so i find that for me and for so many people in my research moderation just like with alcohol does not work when it comes to sugar so if we can get people's taste buds recalibrated if we can change our our physiology even in those very first few days of the detox phase which it's it's incredible i mean there is a serious detox phase when it comes to sugar i mean what does that tell us like we're dealing with brain fog we're we have more you know there's often more phlegm in people's bodies like we're talking about fatigue and low energy for those first few days i mean we are detoxing from sugar and so when we can get through those first few days it's truly amazing when people come through about day five or six they'll say I can't believe how I'm just not craving it anymore you know I feel so much better and I provide a ton of different tools and different things that we're doing to show ourselves love you know in different ways as well it is not just focused on the food but we're using it as a tool so can I jump in here really quickly with my experience this is Megan yeah um on the point of day five, day six, people hit there and they're kind of amazed that the cravings are gone. I'll be honest, I went into this not having had a lot of sugar in my diet recently. And I do agree that that was made, that was a choice I made to nourish my body, replace it with whole foods, um, more what I would call responsible sugars. So sugars from like coconut sugar, um, uh, from dates that I would put in my smoothies, fruit, for example. Um, but occasionally I would, but at that point in time before the the challenge, I had gone through stressors in my life. And so I was adding in more refined sugars. So cookies from my local cafe or bakery, et cetera. So I really, and I was having a lot of, of caffeine, coffee, um, so I really did see that the, the effects start to, to weigh on my body and on my skin. And so I went into the challenge really looking for um, that day five, day six moment that I think a lot of people who go into one of these challenges do. And that is kind of a freedom, like you were saying. I do believe in the freedom that this kind of cleanse does allow for. But I hit day five, day six, and I was doing okay Um no big differences. I then hit day 14 and no big differences and my skin's not clearing up and, and my, my digestive system is feeling a little bit better. Yes. But my fatigue and my brain fog has gone away and I had quick coffee too. And so that could also be just taking out so much all at once, but I'd like to get your thoughts on those women 
who do go through your program who maybe don't see those results as kind of quickly as you're explaining them right now? Well, I mean, and it is different for everybody. So day five, day six is usually about the time that I start to hear people saying that they're feeling a lot better. For a lot of people, it takes them two weeks for sure. And even longer. Like some days it was some women, it was honestly day 21. And they were like, I'm finally starting to feel like myself again. Like I'm finally starting to come around and feel it, you know, feel better again. So uh, I'm not going to say that it's a one size fits all. There's no doubt that, you know, it's different for everybody. But um, I think that we can all agree that that putting in good food in our body and, and getting rid of a lot of those toxins is is something that we're doing that is a good thing for our bodies. I mean, did you did you ever feel better on the entire challenge? Um, I, skin wise, I will, no, (laughs) my skin did not get any better. Um, and I'm still struggling with it. Um, and going through my own nutrition research, I'm in school about to finish my certification right now to try to handle that. Um, I refuse to do it through, um, any other means, um, toxic chemicals, uh, and skincare products like Holly was saying earlier. I also Mm -hmm. believe in that. Um, Digestive wise, yes. Um, weight wise, I don't care. I've left that long ago, as Holly mentioned. Uh, I've struggled with with both sides of the eating disorder spectrum, so binge eating and and um, not eating and starvation, and so that wasn't really a big deal. Um, I think I, I maybe because I really honestly, what I came out with at the end of the challenge was just being more mindful about my relationship to sugar overall and kind of how I feel about it um, and how it makes me feel as an individual and vilifying it or kind of fearing it and, and making it seem like something scary that was going to continue to cause me to break out or cause my health to spiral downhill um, and also talking about it to others became kind of alienating at the end of it, to be honest with you. And so um, I, I know it's not very you, positive. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the I'm, health I'm, side I'm, of things, yeah. but it just, I think there were more questions at the, and for me as somebody who's studying nutrition and believes wholeheartedly in everything you're saying, I do agree with the, the, the sugar industry and, and everything they've done is just, backwards. And I do agree that, you know, the whole middle of the grocery store section is bringing us down to society health wise. But at the end of it, here I am a, a, a girl who's had the, the privilege to shop at Whole Foods, for example, um, and really be able to take care of myself by nourishing myself with foods that maybe some people don't even have access to right away. And I still had more questions than I had answers. So what are your questions? Um, I think my questions, the biggest question for me is, do I want to completely cut sugar out of my life? Is it worth it for me? I love and that I, question. And as we Holly was that- saying, it's also a relationship aspect. You know, there is yeah. something about the crafting of certain, certain baked goods, of certain moments you share with your family. I mean, when you're taking sugar out of your diet, for many, that's not just taking sugar out of your diet, that's taking connection out of your diet. That's taking celebration out of your diet. I mean, so look, we're going into holidays right now, and I, I know that it's overly advertised at the holidays, sugar, but at the same time, it's also a part of our tradition. And so I think that also, the importance of that versus um, 
versus taking it completely out for me, what was more important? What is my choice point? Where do I, where is the priority for me? Um, so and maybe I'm just all- not there right now to make the priority to completely cut it out. And that I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I just want to make the point that it's this challenge is only meant to be 28 days. Then, of course, there's reintegration if you want to continue for 28 more days just to slowly reintegrate it back into your life. But it's not meant to be forever and ever, amen, you don't ever eat sugar again. I mean, I talk about it a lot in the maintenance phase where it's, you know what, I have a cheat meal now and again. There's no doubt about it. I do. But it's just about building awareness so that people, when they do choose to bring sugar back into their lives, it's eyes wide open. We're not just reaching for it unconsciously. You know, it's something that we are choosing to do because it's Christmas and we want to have shortbread with our family. And that's a treat that we look forward to all year long. And we are damn well going to do that. And so I, the entire book is written in the spirit of really um, building awareness around food, building awareness around our relationship to it and trying to create some freedom around uh, our relationship with food so that we don't, we're not confused about it anymore. So that there isn't this entire confusion about body image and self-image and, and e- restriction and, 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 and indulgence. And it's just a matter of, we understand what food is used to, to do in our bodies. And you don't have to have a degree in nutrition or be a dietitian to, to get those basics, but it's just to have eyes wide open about what is really going on in the sugar industry, what's going on in, in at the grocery store and what's going on in our own homes and so if you come out with it feeling like you you know you're, you're feeling like the message was to never have sugar again um i i'm I, I hope that that isn't isn't a message that that's sticking with i i don't want that to be the message well it's you not just with. your i mean it's not like that like to be clear i don't think it's just the the book that she's talking about or that influences us or influences this discussion i mean gabby bernstein doesn't t- uh, doesn't eat sugar there's a lot of messages out in the media about what we should and shouldn't eat and yeah. so i think it's just a general commentary um mm-hmm. you know not necessarily just on what the book is saying but also just on you know kind of it's a commentary on on how women are like for Megan, for me, like it's, it's a, you know, just cause we've talked about it so much. It's a coming to of what's right for us in a society that's screaming at us, be paleo, don't eat meat, eat red meat, don't eat sugar, don't drink dairy, don't have soy. Don't, you know what I mean? Like, uh, love your body, hate your body, you know, be thin, be fat, whatever the fuck. It is like a very complicated world. And so I think like the points are not just about what the book says. Also, it's just the point of, 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 you know, where we are, you know, in general and in, in the, you know, the world we live in. But I do like Laura had a very different experience. I would love to hear Laura, what your experience was. Um, Sure. Before I do that, Sarah, did you want to respond to that? No, you started to talk. Uh, sorry, no, no, that's good. You go ahead. So, okay, so my experience was this. I uh, I purposefully didn't do much of anything with my diet when I got sober because it was just, it wasn't a priority for me. That said, I have, I have a, like Holly and, and Megan, um, a, a long history with a complicated relationship with food, eating disorders, all of that. And I sort of dropped that monkey off of my back, meaning I, I just couldn't think about it anymore when I, around the time I had my daughter. So my early thirties and 
I, when I got sober, I definitely gave myself permission to just kind of do whatever. And, you know, I say that not because I think that's what people should do. Uh, I don't think people should do anything. I think that's my point is um, you do what allows you to get sober first. And over the course of two years, I have definitely had a good amount of sugar in my in my diet. Some some good, some bad. When I was not looking forward to doing it, but I felt like I reached a point where it would be interesting for me to try. I definitely did experience the awareness right away, like you said, about how much sugar I had actually been eating. And that was good. Like that awareness was good. Um, I think awareness is always good. So it was helpful to see. Um, I kind of cleaned out my house of, I mean, I'm the kind of person who like, I have a kid and we have candy around sometimes and we, I eat ice cream a lot and a lot of processed sugars. So it was a good sort of cleaning uh, in terms of getting that stuff just out of my house that doesn't, that isn't doing much for me. Around day 15 or 16, somewhere in there, I didn't have a hard time with it, by the way, um, up until that point. But day 15 or 16, I started to feel like I didn't really care anymore if I was doing this or not doing this. And it wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't wait to go jump off a cliff and like have, you know, Oreos and ice cream but I just don't know if I care um, or how much I care about this. I didn't feel better. I didn't feel worse. Um, I did feel a little more emotionally sort of raw um, because I know I didn't have that little crutch. I realized that I, at the end of the day, um, usually in the afternoon or at the end of the day, I'm looking for that sugar and I didn't have that. So it was like removing another, another binky that I'd had. <laughs> Um, which was annoying, but fine. And I see the value in that too. But there were two things that happened. So one was the election night. And I was sitting there uh, watching this thing unfold. And I was deeply uncomfortable. And I stayed up much later than I usually do. And I was like, I have, there's nothing. <laughs> that I can use right now to, you know, like I wasn't going to have more food that I wasn't going to have more of the food that I was, had been eating on the challenge, which was all good food, by the way. Um, and I realized, okay, I'm emotionally like, I, I'm really annoyed right now because I want something right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't, I didn't like, I think I had an apple mm. <laughs> and, uh, and peanut butter or almond butter or something. Okay, so there was that. Um, and then that sort of also flipped the lid on, I don't know if I give a shit about this. Like in the grand scheme of things, I don't know how much I care. Um, and then I think, oh, I went, okay. So the second thing that happened was I went up skiing and I'm with my daughter and my ex-husband and a bunch of adults and there are people who drink, right? And we are... I had been going through a pretty rough emotional time uh, 
at that point and I was, I kind of dipped into depression. This was right around Thanksgiving, leading up to Thanksgiving. I dipped into a depression. I was having a really hard time just sort of being and, and being comfortable. And I was up in Maine and we went to, I, I barely made it over to these people's house. I just didn't want to be by my, I didn't want to be with other people. I didn't feel like talking. I didn't feel like socializing. So I'm really raw and we go and they're drinking and I already feel like weird enough and other enough because I don't drink. And I didn't have, again, like I didn't have a thing that I, like I've, I just felt raw mm-hmm. and I'm not eating a bunch of the food that they have out because it's got sugar in it. And so I'm sitting there after dinner and I, you know, all the kids are, they pull out stuff for the kids to have to make Sundays. And it felt like I felt when I was in early sobriety, to be honest, like I felt just that otherness, that awkwardness, that like, I don't, where the hell do I belong? And I'm not saying this is because of the sugar at all. I'm just saying it's the way that I was feeling already. And I think about it and I'm like, why, why wouldn't I have ice cream with the kids right now? My, my daughter brought over like a, a thing of me to try f- of hers, like her Sunday or whatever. And I was like, no. And then I was like, what? Fuck this. Like, why am I doing this? I don't even care. And I had some ice cream and I didn't, it wasn't crazy. I had some ice cream. It was good. And I definitely felt how sweet it was. It was like kind of a shock to my system. Um, and I had a little bit of a stomach ache, but for that, you know, for that little bit of time, I felt like, I felt like I was like part of the deal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it sounds a lot like drinking when I explain it this way. Right. And I realized for some people, it is not an option to have sugar at all. I know. Um, yeah, that's a good I advice. realize that. Yeah. It, it is not an option. I have a friend who has a, a bracelet that she wears around that says fuck sugar. Because yeah. to her, it really sets her off this cliff. And like if she was going to have the ice cream that she had that night, that means she's having two more things of ice cream. And then the next day she's having pancakes and syrup. And then she it's like sets her off on the phenomenon of craving that they talk about in AA. It yep. looks like that for her and it goes on indefinitely and she feels totally out of control. But that wasn't, that isn't my experience. Like mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. I feel it brings me joy. I don't have a bunch of sugar every day. I sometimes don't have it. I sometimes do have it. And that's what I realized like on this, I realized there were some really positive things in terms of how much sugar I was actually eating and realizing I have too much overall. But there was also this realization that I just don't care that much. For me, I just, it's not a priority. I take care of my body in a lot of other ways. I have the same issues with extremism that Holly does. And for me, it's not worth it. Um, So does that mean I didn't, you know, this challenge was unsuccessful for me? I don't think so. I think that was actually successful. Mm -hmm. Um, But is it something that, is it something I want to be sort of rigid about or I don't like the word rigid either. Cause I know that's not what you're trying to do. Is it something I want to put a bunch of energy into? No. Am I ever going to talk about what I eat on social media ever again? No, no, ever. <laughs> right. Like that invited in a whole world that I am just not interested in, in participating in. I'm not saying it's wrong for other people. It's wrong for me. I don't, 
that's like not the mountain I'm willing to die on, you know? Um, so that was my experience. It's kind of mixed. Yeah. And I, I really love your, your candor and sharing what you got out of it. And I just think it's awesome. I think it's awesome that you had, um, I, at the end of the day, all I ever wanted to do with this work is to uh, create awareness. I want right. people to have more awareness in their lives about what they are putting in their bodies. Yeah. And so that, I, it, it definitely did that. You know, for me, it did that, that then, you know, if that, that worked. And so what happens with people who have full-blown sugar addiction is they do typically feel terrible for the first few days and often up until, like we said, 14, even 21 days, people are feeling like they've been hit by a bus because they have been uh, extremely addicted to it. It sounds to me like you had a decent diet, you're a runner, you know, you're fairly active anyway. And I just feel like for you, this was just something where you could look at and say, you know, this like you said, you know, th uh, it doesn't matter to you. Like you just don't care enough about it. Um, and that's fair too. But I also think that there's room to look at when we make a decision to do something for 28 days. I do think that it's amazing how many people, you know, can't get to the 28 days because they just feel like they're unable to do it. And so much of what I love when people are able to get to the 28 days who truly made the decision and really want to do it because they are struggling in their lives. And maybe it's, you know, you maybe didn't have that struggle in your life. But what I find is that just after that 28 days, so many, honestly, like it's messages, message after message that I get of people telling me that it's, they finally have this freedom around food. They finally look at it for what it really is that it nourishes their body and you know what yeah they still go out they'll have a, a piece of pizza but they know that they are not going to feel as well having that pizza as they do when they have a meal that they've cooked for themselves and so if I've done anything in the world that is all I want to do is to, to create more awareness to help me people to have more freedom around their food choices and to know what's available to them and to know that it doesn't all have to look like weighing your food and going on a diet and counting calories like none of that matters we all have enough information out there and yeah we do have to kind of figure out what what pattern, what plan works for each of us. I mean, some people are vegetarian, some are vegan and some eat meat. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is that we're putting into our bodies, for the most part, if we can make whole food, real food choices for most of our diet and forget about the way our bodies look, because that's just what I, another piece of this whole thing is just to really try to stop focusing on the, on the look of our body and really start to think more inwardly about how amazing these incredible vessels are that get to carry our spirit through the world. I just think that that helps us in all areas of our lives. Can I talk about my experience on it? Yep. Okay. So for me, I went through, I, I mean, I went into it just kind of not really, you know, thinking too much about it because I don't think too much about sugar anymore. And just to be clear on that, I, I had done my work with sugar. When I stopped drinking, I went full into the only thing I could stomach, the only thing I wanted was sugar. Um, at, at, you know, and I, and before I stopped drinking, sugar was not a thing. Sugar became a thing for me once I stopped drinking, um, because all of a sudden I could have it. And also because we know once you, you know, alcohol converts to sugar at a high rate, it's the way a lot of us, you know, manage our blood sugar. Um, and once we remove that, our body is seeking that same instant hit, our body seeks sugar. And so for a lot of people that quit drinking, sugar becomes a thing and it became a really big thing for 
me. And I didn't mind it because it wasn't, I was losing weight. I lost weight after I stopped drinking and, you know, was eating, you know, a, a you know, a mostly sugar diet. I could only, I only wanted pastry. I carried pastry in my purse. I ate a lot of um, gummy candy. Um, and my, I was working with a doctor who was trained in, um, diet and, and how to, you know, uh, take people through amino acid therapy. And she put me on a pretty, um, strict protocol to, to help me not just with sugar, but also to help me with, I was trying to stop smoking pot. I was trying to stop smoking cigarettes. Um, and I was bulimic and she knew all this stuff. And so she put me on it to just help me as she'd said it, stop white knuckling things. And, um, and so I went on a, a pretty severe supplement protocol. And I mean, we're talking, I probably had 30 bottles of supplements on my counter and I was taking them when I first, you know, 30 minutes before meals with meals, 30 minutes, you know, um, I mean, I, I took pills like six times a day and I got, I, I lost even more weight and I lost, um, I lost my appetite completely for about four months. And I've been struggling with bulimia and anorexia since I was, you know, I've been, I've been struggling with my weight since I was a baby, you know, since I was a baby, I was called fat when I was little, I was, you know, I was aware of, of my weight, you know, way before little girls should be aware of their weight. And I tried to diet way before little girls should try and diet. And I got into bulimia and anorexia when I was 17 or 18. And so this, I stopped my relationship with sugar normalized after this. And by, by normalized, I mean, it wasn't a thing that I felt, I felt that I needed compulsively the way that I did before I went on this amino acid thing. Um, I did not think about sugar. I did not find myself eating it despite not wanting to eat it. Um, it does not mean that sugar was off the table for me. It just meant that it wasn't sugar all the time. And so I, you know, the, the thing I think that's most important to understand that Laura talked about is that I've spent, you know, the last three years doing nothing but learning to love my fucking body. That's all I've done. You know, I take baths almost every day. I, you know, by, I, I used essential oils for the last couple of years. Um, I take it, I take my body and I get massages. I do yoga almost every day. I meditate every day. I, um, you know, I drink a ton of water. Um, I, you know, I, I do, I've eaten, you know, vegetarian for, I would say when you accumulated about half of my life, um, I'm careful about, I am, you know, I am aware of what I put into it. I, I, you know, eat a ton of vegetables. I, um, you know, I make smoothies, I make juice, all of that shit. But at the same time, I also, um, kind of eat what I want to eat. And that's because of where I'm at with it. And what I found was, you know, when I was on this, the election happened. And also, um, that was, you know, I don't know how to explain it other than I, I also hit like Laura, you know, my sad came on board. I have seasonal affective disorder and it just for me became this thing. And I, and, and then beyond that also I posted about it and I got a lot of letters from women who, um, were, you know, who look up to what I put out there and also just don't want another voice telling them, I mean, overcoming alcohol addiction is hard, hard thing. And there was this, um, this, this, please 
don't, you know, talk about it. Like it, it just another deprivation thing, another way to deprive ourselves. And so I, I, for me, what this was, a, was, was a beautiful experiment in just, um, getting real with my, like actually getting to the point of, of talking about my eating disorders. Cause I don't talk about them. And, you know, for me, my fight has been not thinking about food and my fight has been, being okay with my body and my fight, you know, so for me, I've, I've talked before about know what you can and can't fuck with. Now, and when I first stopped drinking, sugar was a thing that was, it was, uh, was controlling me. It was, and I have to be honest with that, but also where I'm at right now, sugar is not a thing that controls me. I do a lot of stuff to take care of this vessel, as you say, that carries our spirit. It's, you know, I love, my work is loving this thing. But at the same time, it was, you know, I, I can fuck with sugar. I can have, you know, I can have a piece of candy and leave it at that. And I do know there are many people that that cannot, I have friends just like Laura does that cannot have sugar and who've told me sugar to me is, is what alcohol is to you. Um, but for me, it's, I was in the same boat with Laura, which was, it's just not a thing. And I do enough good. And I just, it was more of at this point, I just, I just, I can't care enough about this right now. Um, and, and the stuff and I, and I'm, I guess for me, what it really showed me was, I, first of all, I am, I do put a lot of consideration. I've worked with a nutritionist for the last couple of years. I'm careful with dairy, soy, gluten. I, you know, I do, I, I would say I do good about, I try and do, do my best about 70%, 80% of the time. Um, but for me, this is a really an experiment and a couple of things that showed me one, um, I'm doing pretty good Two, I, I like being, I, I like where I am at. Um, and, and then three also it's, it's time for me to start talking about what my story has been with food. And it led to me actually writing about my eating disorders and, and kind of starting to, uh, bring up some stuff I had around that. So long story short, it was, you know, for me, I get it. And I've done that work with it. I have actually done the work around sugar. Um, and I get it. And I think it's an important thing for everyone to look at. I think just like anything to, you know, to be able, just like to be able to look at the things that control us and drive us. I think that that is a, is a brave thing. And it's an important thing. Um, and for me, what this was, um, was just a, was really just a, a reaffirmation that I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing to, you know, and, and how I'm nurturing myself and that it's a continuing and involving journey for me. Um, so, yeah. I love it. I love I love every piece of what you just said. And, uh, and I feel like everybody wants to have that same freedom that you're now feeling, especially for someone like you that's come through an eating disorder. And I don't have that experience, so I can't speak to it. But I love what you're saying about it. And I want other people to get where you are. And, um, and again, I am not a nutritionist, not a dietitian. I'm just simply a woman who 14 years ago got sober from alcohol and all of a sudden started reaching for tubs of Haagen-Dazs and, mm-hmm. uh, and Ben and & Jerry's. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? I have not craved sugar since I was a little kid. So yeah. for me, addic- addiction transference was, was extremely real for me. And I had to come up with ways, as I mentioned earlier in my story, that um, ways that I could not sit there and, and eat a bunch of junk when I was supposed to be this health and, th- and fitness enthusiast. So what it's done is it's created a lifestyle for me that I'm truly proud of. And it's allowed me to live in a, a 
in a body that I, I now look for every way in every situation that I can love and respect my body and show it love. And does that mean that I eat a pizza piece of pizza to show it love now and again? Yeah. A brownie? Yes. A piece of pastry? Sure. And that happens for me. And I'm able to have that one thing and not go crazy, but I have to keep it in check. I'm not somebody who can just sort of ignore it. And, uh, and I definitely have to be mindful of it. So I do have freedom around food because I, for the most part, nourish my body in a way that I'm using food as fuel. I'm using it to feel my best. And I do feel my best when I feed it with really high quality food. Um, but there are times that I absolutely do have a cheat meal and I love every bite of that and feel zero guilt about it. And I feel like it's kind of like putting withdrawals and, and deposits in a bank account, right? Like I can't just sit there and eat junk food every day, all day long and expect to have a body that's going to serve me and work properly and not get a disease. And, you know, I, I, I just feel so strongly about the connection between what we eat and the way we feel and the way we present in the world. And so for me, it's like I say, it's like a bank account. I deposit, I drink green juices and smoothies and I eat really well. I have, you know, I, I do eat meat and um, and I feel that that's important for a, a lot of people. And, um, and, and it's not everybody's decision and that's fine. But I just choose to eat whole real foods as much as I possibly can. And then I fill in with, uh, with cheat meals now and again. And that works for me. And it seems to work for a lot of people that, um, that have gone on the challenge, that they have finally been able to just have more awareness and have more of like, you know, the, the, the light bulb moments that you were able to have after all of that, thousands of dollars in amino acid therapy. I mean, a lot of us don't have access to those resources. They don't have access to that kind of, um, nutrition, you know, advice. And so I didn't do any kind of amino acid therapy. I just went to using food in the way that I do. And I'm just sharing what I've learned with other people. Yeah. I do want to say something about the access of that. I mean, for me, I found the money to buy alcohol and pot, you know, and I think for a lot of us, it, it was, it costed all in all, it cost a thousand dollars for, for the, for about four months of it. Um, but also I do have to say that I invested money that I was saving from not drinking and doing drugs. Just one hundred percent. It is I a privilege that, to be able to yeah. do any of that. I have to like, just like Megan said, where we shop yeah. the food we <clears> eat. <throat> it is a privilege, um, but also it was money that I saved from from not buying drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, thank you, Sarah. This is good. I think even though you know, like, I'm glad we we talked about all our experiences, and and I think that. It's so I know because I get the emails and I know Holly does too that so many women have had the exact same experience that you said they quit drinking and they are consumed by sugar and I think this conversation is going to be huge for them. Um, where can we where can people find you? Oh, thanks so much. So sarahtalksfood.com is my blog and I talk about all different things on there, not only recovery and not only food. So uh, that's a place to find me. And then uh, there is a link to buy my book from that website or you can go directly to ktsc28.com. It's the acronym for Kick the Sugar Challenge 28.com. And um, I'm creating my online course as we speak. And so I uh, will have that available in the new year for people if they want to go through um, an actual course and work with me and uh, and do some of the work that's in the in the book and also other things that are not in the book and just have more of sort of a, a handheld approach to it as opposed to just reading a book and trying to do it on your own. That'll be available in the new year. So good. Awesome. Thank you, lady. Thank um, you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Megan. 
Nice to meet all of you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate meeting you and just keep doing the amazing work you're doing. We need your work in the world. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Same to you. Thanks, girls. Bye. Bye. Infinitely so